Well, we are excited to be together again. If you have your Bible, uh, I would love and invite you to, to turn to 1 Timothy, uh, which is the study that we have been in, the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And as we've been walking through the book, uh, what we began to realize is there is a, a quite an alarming predicament that is going on in the life of the church of Ephesus, of which Timothy pastors, and now Paul is writing to Timothy. And as we've been covering in the course of the first section or the first uh, small portion of this book, uh, how the false teachers were able to invest in such a way that they got inside the body, became perhaps even leaders in the body, and now we're dispensing a different gospel than from which the body was founded on. And we know that, that Paul has some words to say about uh, a command to Timothy and the importance of this. But let's also, just as we study, not lose sight of the reality of what's going on, uh, not only in this passage, but in the book at large. This morning, we're going to talk about Paul's description of his past life and his present hope and the reason of that overflowing grace that he experienced. You ask yourself, why would he be talking about this? Because the false teachers were espousing a gospel that was opposite and that wouldn't overflow with grace, would send people to hell. And Paul says, but there is a grace that saves. And there is something unique and special that Timothy, you, you must make sure that you are going to declare to the church at Ephesus so that they can declare it to the, to the communities that are around them. But remember this, as we, as we walk through this particular book, one of the things that we found as we looked in this book is that there's a larger point. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we re, you remember this statement when Paul says to Sim, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay that you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You wonder why Combating false doctrine and false teaching was such a primary emphasis of the book of 1 Timothy because the, the actual opposite was being declared by these false teachers. There was a different gospel that was leading to a different kind of earthly conduct. And last week, we walked through a variety of these particular components. But remember, one of the reasons that the church is such a magnificent place and has, has such a, a, an important duty in the life of Christian people, it is to stand for the truth. What other entity will stand for the authoritative, inspired, infallible truth of the very words of the revealed God of heaven? I can't think of many other than churches. In fact, as I look in the culture in so many ways, the church is honestly appears to be one of the last fortified places where a sense of authority and morality is dispensed from an all divine God who is holy and just and good, who sets boundaries that are for our benefit, not for our detriment. But you know what? Don't miss this. Combating false teaching and keeping people away from lies that, they, that would send them to eternal separation from God. 
is part of why the church exists. The church is the church, did you notice this? It's the church of not a dead God. It is a church of the living, almighty, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God who purchased you and I and every other repentant believer by his blood. And he is living and breathing and resurrected from the grave. And that God, that Christ, that King, he is coming back for his church. He will leave no one behind who has repented and trusted in him. This is his church. The church of this living God who is so intricately involved with earth history because he has a redemptive plan. But it's not just that. It's the fact that the church exists as the pillar and the ground and the foundation of the very truths that not only bring someone to saving faith in Christ, but they bring believers to, an, to a sanctified lifestyle that is so exactly opposite than the world. Have you noticed that? Christians are different. They love differently. They think differently. They behave differently. They don't behave like this list that we previously saw where, do you notice this connection? False teaching leads to all kinds of ungodly conduct. It's the way that it happens. It's the way that teaching works. You believe what you believe and you begin to love based on what you believe and then you begin to practice based on what you know and what you begin to love. And if what you love is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will lead you to all kinds of different ungodly behavior. The church is that beacon of light, that city set on a hill that is filled with people who have been regenerated and renewed and sanctified, who are desiring to live such godly lives that when people look at a Christian and they look at someone who's a not a Christian and they go, they do things differently. The list I want you to even realize that we went through that is quite a heavy list, is it not? But one thing I want you to notice about that previous list, all those things that you see are not practiced or a conduct that comes out of your biology. They are conduct that comes out of your theology. Which means... What is true in Matthew chapter 15, verse 17 and 18, it says, do you not see whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this is what defiles a person. You and I are renewed in the spirit of Christ with the indwelling spirit of God that leads us to desire to live a righteous and godly life. But for an unbeliever, one who does not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ will find themselves believing and practicing all kinds of evil. And then it even goes beyond that. Do you notice in our culture how there's this large propensity to say, like, it wasn't me? Someone else made me do it. But when someone does something horrific, it sounds a lot like that person and it looks a lot like that person. 
There is a sense of personal responsibility that the gospel brings to our lives. It's the Romans 6, let not sin reign in your mortal body that you, to make you obey its passions, but present your body to God as instruments of righteousness because he's brought you from death to life. But so often in our culture, this lack of attentiveness to personal responsibility has allowed various forms of evil conduct to be viewed as some sense of a biological disposition so that it leaves people saying, well, I just couldn't help it. I just did it because that's in my DNA. Sin, in the practice of sin, comes from sinful from a sinful nature that occurred the moment you and I were born into this world. Which originated from Genesis chapter one, when, and, and Genesis chapter three, when, when Adam and Eve fell into sin and took the fruit and wouldn't trust the Lord. I love one quote by the speaker uh, that one of my colleagues who teaches alongside me that was here, Dr. Nicholas Ellen, who you just heard not too long ago, he'll often say this. He'll say, the, cult the culture is often seeking to blame the brain for something God is going to hold the heart responsible for. And so often we are looking for excuses in conduct based on biology and DNA. But can I tell you this? they're not gonna find an anger gene. They're not gonna find an anger or a worry gene. And you know what? They're not gonna find even a gay gene. Because in the Bible, sinful conduct is a practice. It is not your biology, it flows from your theology. And even when your theology is wrong, it ends, leads you then to all kinds of ungodly practices. Why is that? Because God himself as the righteous holy judge will hold all responsible to living according to God's standards. Do you know he does that because he loves us? He doesn't look out at the world and say, you know what, uh, I don't want anything to do with you. In fact, he did everything to have something to do with us. He, did, he gave his only son so that all of us could have the opportunity to be saved. And that is Paul's whole focus in 1 Timothy, is to help Timothy instruct the people at Ephesus to, to understand the gospel of this blessed and glorious God who loves people who have even practiced sin. And now what you're gonna see in the section before us, before you get too heavy and think to yourself, like why is he listing all these sins? Why is he bringing all the pressure to us? Do you know why? Because Paul understood that's who he was. That's who he used to be. And there was hope. I didn't... We don't have to practice things like that. We can believe the right things. We can believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and it will change everything for you. It will change your standing before God and it will change your desires before God. So you can say to yourself, I love him. He does all of that. In our section this morning, Paul recounts various elements so that we could begin to see that Paul was not just ridiculing 
false teachers and false conduct that proceeds out of that teaching, but to help them realize that if you find yourself in a predicament where you don't believe in the gospel, that there's hope for you and hope for me because we can believe it. And when we believe it and we repent and we turn to him, his grace saves. That's what it is designed to do. First Timothy chapter one, follow along if you will. First Timothy chapter one, verses 12 to 14. He says this, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though I formerly, though formerly I was a blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you what. The gospel of God is the offer of overflowing, abundant grace. Don't ever get tired of hearing about grace Don't ever get tired of thinking about grace. The gospel of God, the one who is blessed that Paul has been talking about, is this God who comes before all all humanity of all times and says, I want to give you this special gift, but you cannot earn it. It is the offer of grace. It is the offer of a grace that can save And it's this desire that Paul would tell Timothy, never stop teaching the gospel of grace. Now, as we look and we look at these varieties of sections, I want us to notice as we walk through this text, what Paul is doing. We see this perspective of praise and he starts here. So when he starts here and then leads into, but here's what I was, I want you to notice something. Paul could never say what he says in 1 1 Timothy 1 verse 12 until he was saved and, and saved by the overwhelming, overabundant grace of God. And then he looks back at his life and he sees who he was more clearly. It was his post salvation experience that draws him to say what he says. He couldn't say this before. Notice what he says. I thank my God who has given me strength. Do you notice there's this uncanny reality for most Christians? They tend to be happier, more thankful people. I know you know a few people who aren't, okay? But by and large, you meet a Christian and they tell you this story of God's overabundant grace. And they'll start saying things and you'll start hearing things like, there's this, this, there's this, this gracious, benevolent, merciful God who just grabbed me out of my own sin and he loved me enough to save me. And I couldn't even see that I needed saving, but he saw that I needed saving and he rescued me. There is this dimension that ought to exude from the life and character of Christian people. You ought to be a thankful person. But you know what? I find that in many ways, in, in, in many moments of my life, do you notice in the moments of your life, 
There are things that happen that we cannot control, things that, that happen to us or things that we, that we wish wouldn't have happened to us. And all of a sudden, that our, our sinful nature that still we struggle with, all of a sudden goes, what are you doing up there? And immediately we transfer from thanksgiving to grumbling. I mean, anybody grumbled this last week? Be honest. You did, didn't you? There are moments you're thinking, why do I have to go through this? Why do I have to be here? Why do I have to work this job? Why do I have to, why do I have to extend myself? Why do I have to do dishes? Why do I have to go here? There are all kinds of things in your life and mine where we still struggle with the temptation to grumble and complain. But the gospel of overflowing grace is supposed to transform us from grumbling, ungrateful people to people who are transformed in the way that they love and the way that they thank God for his benevolence. It is the very reason why we don't press, and you often don't ever hear us say something like, you know what, there's offering boxes in the back. And now you're going, now you did. It's because you don't necessarily have to say to people who are Christians, who have a benevolent spirit, give. They just do it. And do you realize right now that what God is doing in the life of the, of the chapel, even the way he is gracing us with resources to do ministry is because of the benevolence of the people of God whose hearts have been transform, transformed, who sit right in this room, who do together what nobody could do alone. And we all have a part in it. This Thanksgiving tends to overflow into who you are. In fact, but it's not just a response, it's also a deliberate choice. Do you notice that you have to choose to be thankful? Which means it's a work of the mind. It's not just a result. I can have Thanksgiving as a result when somebody gives me something good. Oh, I'm so thankful. But you know what? What if nobody gives anything and no one says anything and no one does anything for you? Can you still be thankful? Guess what? Whether you see it or not, whether you recognize it, but there is a work of God through the person of the Holy Spirit that day in and day out, from morning to night, and keeps you while you sleep. He is growing you. He is convicting you. He is guiding you. He is sanctifying you. You don't do that. He does that and he helps you. This Thanksgiving that Paul would, would appreciate and acknowledge to this one blessed God, I want you to notice how his appreciation flowed out of this passage. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, how can I be a more appreciative person? Well, here's one of the ways. He says this, he says, I thank God, the one who has given me strength. Have you gotten a hold of this yet as a Christian that when you tend to be ruling your life, you tend to screw it up? But when God is controlling your life and you're living out of, the, uh, out of being yielded to the work of the Spirit, that he's developing the fruits of the Spirit, and even when he does that, he gives you a strength that you yourself don't have. 
I love it, even the language, how he expresses this idea of the one who gives me strength. He uses a passive participle to understand this. It is the one, and I am the recipient of a grace that doesn't belong to me. A grace I didn't earn, a strength that doesn't come from me. It was the strength of some other person. It was the strength of Christ. This idea that he's trying to describe to us, that he's saying, I'm so thankful for, is this divine enablement. Do you realize that an unbelieving person, unless they are divinely enabled by God to see the truth and they are not drawn by the work of the Spirit of God, they will be lost. Salvation from beginning to end all belongs to God. Why do we need, by the way, think about it theologically. Why do you need to be enabled? You might be sitting here thinking to yourself, I'm pretty able. You are not able enough to get yourself to heaven. And the representation of the Bible in Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Can I just tell you something? I know this will blow your mind. Dead people don't think and make decisions. Have you noticed that? You've gone to a funeral and they close the casket and no one's like saying, let me out. When you are dead, you are dead. You are dead intellectually, you are dead affectionally, and you are dead volitionally. You cannot think on your own, love on your own, do things on your own, because this is what the Bible says, being dead in your trespasses and sin, which means we and, and every Christian who comes to saving faith before Christ is totally and utterly depraved. That is the theological word that you will hear people say. And depravity has engulfed our worlds from Genesis chapter 3 and put a separation between us and God. As I was telling the starting point class this morning, so often people say, you know what? Well, that just seems so mean of God that he wouldn't just love everybody and just let them all into heaven. I said, let me tell you what unloving is. Unloving is a God who sees the predicament of totally depraved people who can't think and have affections and choose to ever get into heaven on their own because they're totally depraved and he just leaves them on their own and says, see you later. That is not the God of the Bible. The God in the Bible has given his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and what he has done is he's offered his own son on the cross to shed his blood so that you and I could be saved. What's loving is he provided the sacrifice. And you and I, we didn't deserve any of it. This divine enablement is necessary because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Never to be awakened or alive in the spirit unless God himself draws us to a saving understanding and faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul looked at this in his own life and he was saying to himself, I am so thankful for the one who I received this strength from and divinely enabled me to see what I couldn't see, to love what I couldn't love and to do what I would never do on my own. In short, we could say, Paul is saying, he changed me. He changed me from the inside out.
Where I couldn't come to life, he brought me to life. Oh, I love this for our men and our, you know, our strength in Christ. You'll see guys walking around with, our sh- with shirts, and now we have a bunch of ladies who have their shirts. There's a rival gangs that are in our church. And they're all wearing shirts, part of them, this morning. And we know, what are they doing there at retreats like this? They're helping and encouraging one another in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in a strength that, doesn't, that they receive from the work of Christ. Because they love Jesus Christ. This divine enablement that we build our ministries around comes not from us, but from the God of heaven, the God of grace. Let me say this. So many often there's a misconception and misconstruing in all the kinds of different teachings that are out there that people will be exposed to. Divine enablement does not come by a second baptism of the Spirit that evidences itself in a speaking in tongues. You and I, here's the grace, here's the gift. I tell this to people all the time post-COVID. You've got all the spirits you need when he indwelt you. You don't need a spirit booster. You just don't need it. You're not going in for separate infusions. I just am running low. You get it all when the spirit of God indwells you. Divine enablement does not come in the Bible as a work of a second baptism. There's one baptism, one indwelling of the spirit of God. And he is so graciously given all of the blessings in Christ. Divine enablement doesn't happen from keeping sacraments. So many people grow up in a, with a Roman Catholic background or a Lutheran background where they are consistently being taught that if you keep the sacraments of the church based on the traditions of men, that somehow that will divinely enable you. It won't. Divine enablement does not come through infant baptism. There is no infusion of grace because you're sprinkled. Divine enablement only comes by the saving work and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. In order for you to go from dead to alive... No earthly institution, no church history of uh, tradition, no, no false perspective of needing more than what you need. It is Christ and Christ alone. We sang that this morning. Christ alone, our cornerstone. Why? It's because through him we're made strong. And through only him. Divine enablement does not come by your own works neither pre-saved or after salvation. It comes by a work of the Spirit of God. It is not by works of righteousness. Is it according to his mercy that he saved us? Dispense of this, this idea that you often hear, and I often hear people say it, but I always believed. No, you didn't. Last time I checked, every baby who comes out of a womb does not come out of the womb believing. They are totally depraved. Now, what you might mean by that is this. I've always been around Christian things. 
I've always been around the church. I've always been around hearing about the death and resurrection and faith in Jesus Christ and mercy and grace. I'm familiar with it. But you did not and I did not always believe. I grew up in a pastor's home. From the time that I can remember, there is not a moment of my life that I wasn't exposed to the gospel. But there was a moment where I had to believe and repent from, of my sin because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I grew up in the church and a dad who was a pastor and around Christian things. And let me tell you, it wasn't by works. I know divine enablement doesn't happen by that. You didn't always believe, which means there's a point this morning, you've got to ask yourself the question if you're here and ask yourself, where are you going when you die? See, if you have never repented and trusted in Jesus Christ, you have never been divinely enabled and indwelt by the Spirit of God. And if you go to, if you go to stand before the righteous King of heaven, he will tell you this. He will say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Because your name being, and my name being written in the Lamb's book of life has everything to do with me accepting the free gift of the grace of God. And I can't do it on my own, and I can't trust in traditions of men to do it. I must trust in the only sure thing. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that grace alone saves. Contrary to popular opinion of this world, where Christianity just becomes one of a number of shoots that you will get into heaven with. There is one, and one alone, the Bible says. By grace, you have been saved through faith. And it not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul is not here saying, look at my strength, I'm so strong. He's saying, look at his strength. He is so strong. This one who is so strong, who would give me that kind of strength it was a divine enablement that Paul, an acknowledgement of that divine enablement, but he doesn't just stop there. He acknowledges another thing as well that he was very thankful for. He says, he's given me strength, the strength of Christ Jesus. I love this. Our Lord, he's speaking to Timothy. Timothy, it's not just mine. Timothy, it's yours. It's all the people in Ephesus. Everyone who's a repentant believer, it's our strength that we don't deserve. And then he says, he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. There was an acknowledgement, not only of divine enablement, but there was an acknowledgement of God's spiritual assessment of Paul. This is God looking at Paul after he had the righteousness of Christ. This is not Paul trying to, uh, to develop some kind of a work-based theology, like if God judges you and you gotta work real hard and he's gonna assess your life and then he'll see if you're worthy. Like, if we had to move all the people who are unworthy to one side of the auditorium, we'd all be sitting over here. Because there's no one who's worthy. Not even one. And he says, this acknowledgement of God's spiritual assessment based upon the strength that I receive and the, and the divine enablement of Christ Jesus, our Lord, he looked at my salvation status and he judged me to be, to be appointed or to be faithful. 
I mean, wow. Somebody of Paul's pre-saved status who can say that. Christian, do you say that? Aren't you just enamored to some degree when you get the privilege to be an ambassador of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there's points of it where you're even, you'll share it and you're just thinking to yourself, I have no business giving you this greatest truth. I did nothing for it. I only received it by faith. Uh, and, and now I'm going to share it with you. This judging of Paul, this consideration based upon God's transforming work in his life. Paul would say things like in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He knew that the strength was outside of him, not inside of him. And Christian, the strength you have comes from outside of you who is now gracious enough to live inside of you. Oh, I love Jesus' words to the disciples when he said, you want me to go. I may no longer be with you, but when I send the comforter, he will live. He will not just be with you. He will be in you. You know what that means? There's not a moment in my life after I've, I have con, uh, after I've confessed my sins, not a moment goes by that the spirit of God isn't sustaining me. And he's sustaining you, brothers and sisters. He's sustaining churches all over the world who are preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the strength of Christ himself. It was Christ's works, Christ's strength that allowed Paul to be judged as one who was faithful. He didn't possess that in and of himself. And then he moves on and he says, I acknowledge the assignment. He appointed me to his service. This is the idea that Paul would look at and he's saying, he himself saw fit to appoint a guy like me to a service like this. Wow. Paul is saying, out of the work of Christ that transformed his, his, his life and brought him from death to life and, and transformed him and judged him faithful, that God would see and he would appoint him and deploy him. Christian, when you got saved and you repented of your sin, this is your deployment papers. You are now an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Who are you sharing this gospel with? Who are you telling and being thankful about the strength that you don't possess in and of yourself? Who are you sharing about this one who could divinely enable and bring people who are dead in their sins to life? You're deployed, but some people who have been deployed don't seem to be in the active duty. And it's the, it is the call to every Christian to be deployed for the sake of Jesus Christ so that we are actively involved in sharing this most blessed gospel that no one can earn, that is overflowing with grace and available to everyone who repents and believes. Christian, are you sharing with people who you come across when God opens that door? We're called to, we must. This deployment is not something that God takes lightly. 
It's something that is a privilege for us as Christians to, to talk about this, to think about it, to be transformed by it, to share it with other people. And Paul, as he walks through this, he says, he judged me faithful and he acknowledged this divine enablement. He acknowledged how God would judge him. He acknowledged that he had an assignment and was appointed to his service by the living God. Here is Paul on the road to Damascus and he's going to hunt people down and, the, and Jesus Christ comes and stops him and says, no, you're not. And you're mine. And you're gonna be deployed for me now. And those scales fell from Paul's eyes when Ananias came in and Paul knew his life would be different from that moment forward. Christian, is your life different as a result of your salvation in Jesus Christ? He appointed you for this service. I love Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let me ask you this. Are you living in your own strength? When you're going about your Christian life, how much of this is just you trying to do whatever you want to do and become in your own strength all the things you think that God would be pleased with. I mean, what are the indicators for you that would reveal that you're not leaning on your own strength? You know what it is? One of the, one of the key indicators is trust. You know what? All of us have different things going on in our lives, don't we? Some have really hard situations right now and some are coming with various illnesses. Some are having to live with the reality that they've been di diagnosed with a serious illness and that they will likely meet the Lord earlier than everyone else here. Everybody comes with a challenge that's going on that is trying to perfect our faith. But if we try to go in our own strength, we will fail. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct and make your path straight. It's him. Live in his strength, in trusting him. You know, are, are, you, are you seeking to live by your own agenda? Where if someone, in some sense, do you, do you know what it looks like to live with God's agenda? I mean, maybe it would be good for you to take a time in your own Christian walk and say, and answer the question, what is God's agenda for me as a believer? And start reading through what Jesus says in the Gospels about what his followers need to be like and the epistles on how they need their lives transformed and in Romans where he says to, to live as instruments of righteousness. We are called to be people who don't live in their own strength. Paul's Paul's perspective of praise was based on something outside of him he couldn't do for himself. And he immediately moves to this reality that, to describe his pre-conversion predicament. And he does it in three words. He says, Here, here's who I was formerly. And this is Paul telling them, I wasn't different than one of these people who lived as a murderer that I just mentioned. I was one of them. 
So if you, if you come to this text and think, well, there goes Paul again, you know, just beating people over the head with unbel- you know, this conduct, he's saying, I was one of them. And he says, here's who I was in my past. And he uses three words, blasphemer, persecutor, and the insolent opponent. A blasphemer is a person who lives in such an irreverent way and takes what is held that is sacred and holy and good, and they just totally defame it. They denigrate it. This is why you get, in some sense, uh, at, at the latter times, in, uh, when people will talk about uh, denigrating a temple. A blasphemer looks at the very the person and holiness of God, and he doesn't care that he denigrates it. He doesn't care that he defames it and demeans it. Paul says, that's the kind of guy I was. This strength that I have that I'm telling you about, I didn't once, I didn't have always. Here's who I used to be. I was a blasphemer. In fact, I was even more than that. I was a persecutor. I mean, go back sometime this week and look at Paul's pre-conversion life in Acts chapter eight, Acts chapter nine, Acts chapter 22. And you see these statements as a persecutor, this idea that Paul was hunting people down. It's the only time that Paul uses this particular word to describe one who was a persecutor. I think it's interesting because even as you look, as I was studying, even this particular word and one particular offset that this word is used as a compound word in a Greek translation of another text, it talked about this idea of being an architect. And what he's describing is Paul is saying, not only was I a blasphemer, I was an architect for evil. I was an architect to do the very things that would defame and denigrate the living God. He said, and it wasn't just that. I was an insolent opponent of this God. It's interesting that the word that he uses for insolent opponent is the word hubris which is so closely associated to a narcissism. You know, I think oftentimes today, if Paul would have been around and he would have been doing and leading the way he was leading, uh, many times people would label it something different. In fact, one label that someone that, that came in a journal of neurology called The Brain in May of 2009 describes what they're trying to get into the diagnostic manual for psychiatric disorders, which is called hubris syndrome. Notice what they say. We believe that, this, that extreme hubristic behavior is a syndrome constituting a cluster of features evoked by a specific tri- trigger, power, and usually remits itself when the power fades. Hubris syndrome is seen as an acquired condition and therefore different from most personality disorders which are traditionally seen as persistent throughout adulthood. I mean, what do you think they would have thought about Paul saying, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins, and that's the problem? They would say, no, 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 you have hubris syndrome. That's hubris. To acknowledge the fact that you know more than what God says is to say that you're not totally depraved. He's saying, I was an insolent opponent 
He's saying, I was, and, and notice in this list, by the way, this was fascinating to me as I studied this text, is that just like in Romans, when the, wor- the list keeps getting worse and worse and worse, do you know where you find the other time that this word is used by Paul? Romans chapter one, verse 30, at the very end of the denigration of humanity because of depravity. And he says, they are insolent before God. He's saying, of all the highest things against God I could do, I was a blasphemer, and then it rose to being a persecutor. And of all of that, it couldn't get worse, but it did. I was a high-handed opponent to this God. And you know what he did? He said, but I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. You notice something Paul is saying is I was totally dead in my trespasses and sins. My conduct was murder. My disposition was was persecution. I, I would lift my hand before God and say, how dare you? You have no idea. And that this God divinely enabled me when I was dead. And he, how did he do it? Mercy. Mercy was applied to Paul. And it was this overwhelming sense of mercy applied. And again, in the text, it's a passive verb, meaning mercy is something that's done to you, not something you do to yourself. It's something given outside of you by someone greater than you, and you can get it by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says, I was ignorant. He said, I, I didn't even know what I was doing. In fact, the idea of the word is just totally unaware. I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I was living for, for the right system. And then all of a sudden, I realized I wasn't. In fact, his ignorance even fueled a greater sense of his, of his unbelief. I mean, here Paul is saying on every single facet, intellectually, physically, I was dead. Spiritually, I was dead. He's saying, I couldn't be made alive and mercy was applied. That's how I got the strength. That's how I was divinely enabled. That's how I was judged rightly and faithful. That's how I was was appointed to his work in the ministry. It was because mercy found me and gave me something outside of me. And he continues to to describe this in his post-conversion position. You notice in verse 14, he describes it like this. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with, with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What happened at Paul's conversion? I love when, you, when we think about it in, in our text, uh, the way that it's described. It says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed. But you know, this grace meant so much to Paul that even in the way that he would express it in the language, and Greek has this great ability to be able to shift words to the front of the sentence because they care a little bit less about order than we do in our English language. And he shifts this word, overflowing grace to the front so that no one who would read it would read this text and go, now that means something. In fact, it's interesting because Paul uses this idea of uh, of, of overflowing grace. And all throughout the language that this word was used, it already meant enough. It's like, how much do you, I mean, how can you say like too much? I have more. 
how do you say, I need more? And he says, it was hyper overflowing. He said, it was so overabundant. He said, it just, it didn't stop. This overflowing grace was an active work of God that happened that found me in my sin and saved me. It was, it was a grace of extraordinary abundance to a measure that could not even be measured. And Christians, that grace, if you have repented in, 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 of your sins and trusted in Christ, do you realize that is your position in Christ? One who has the overflowing, abundant grace of God. Nobody can take that from you. Not death, not life, Paul says, not angels or principalities, not some worldly system. Neither death nor life can ever separate you from the love that is in Christ Jesus, Paul says. It is him alone. And he says, in my post-conversion position, I moved from death to life, and, I, I, and it happened because of this overflowing, abundant grace. It's the Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This is why Paul is saying it. Why is this position of grace so important? Because the false teachers were using the law in a way that wasn't leading people to grace. They were using it for their own gain instead of grace to be shown by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, not only that I have grace, but what I found as a result of that, I was blessed. When he overflowed me with grace, he gave me faith and gave me love. Now, why would he use the word faith? Well, remember, he just used and said, I was totally ignorant and unbelief. This idea of the Greek word is to try to help you and I understand. I went from unbelieving to believing. How did I do, how did that happen? Grace. Divine enablement through grace that enlightens the mind, which is why 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the unsaved man, the unbeliever, the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. But it's different for the believer. They love his grace, they love his truth, and they constantly want to follow him. And, and God took him by his grace from unbelief to belief and faith. And then he, he helped him love. Do you notice this? That there's some kind of important quality for Christians to be people of love? Have you noticed that focus in the Bible? Love God, love others. It's all over the place. It's the two greatest commandments. And Paul is saying, as a result of his overabundant grace, I received I believed, I have faith, and I've been given a love that I, I, I never had before. Think of what this love did. The people he once hunted down to kill have now become his closest companions. And now he loves them. And the people that he once imprisoned, you think it wasn't probably difficult at times for Paul to think back about people that he drug off into a prison and locked them up because they didn't believe the truth. And he has to think, that's who I was. That's not who I am now. 
this faith and love that ignites in the believer's heart because of the work of the indwelling spirit of God and the overflowing grace. You know what it does? It helps us to love people who are even enemies to us because love is taught to us by God who sent his one and only son because he loved the world. He wanted all people to have availability to the salvation that would be provided in his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never turned to Christ for salvation, and you, you know, you hear these young people's testimony, praise God for Abby and Elise who have turned from death to life, who've committed their lives to living a life that is pleasing before God, that is now surrounded by a group of people who are gonna help them live that life out according to the principles in the Bible. And many of us, we watch that happen over and over again. Don't ever tire of that. This sense, I love what one commentator says, that the triad of grace, faith, and love offsets the triad of sins that, Paul, that just Paul just talked about, blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He said, here's who I was, and I categorized myself by these big three things, but now here's who I am, and these things overtook that, and I'm a different person, and grace and faith and love has transformed me. And you can have that. Within the Ephesian church, the opponents were teaching an adherence to a law of myth and genealogies of Jewish tradition that would never divinely enable anyone to find the overabundant grace of God because the law was designed to reveal our need for grace. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know what? I've never put my faith in Jesus Christ. Can I just plead with you? Let it be today. Let it be today that you see yourself in light of who God is. This holy, benevolent, righteous king who's willing who is willing to die for you and shed his own blood so that you could have eternal life. He wants you to embrace and believe. I love what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That could be your story today. The old life that you once lived all the sins that you practiced, all the ways that you thought, the things that you loved, you can put it all aside this morning and you can confess your sins and you can come to Jesus Christ and you know what you'll find? Mercy and grace in overabundance and he'll save you and you'll be a new creature in Christ. What if you're a Christian? You know, you look back at your past life, remind yourself, that's not who you are anymore. That's who you were. You're somebody different now. You're a new creation in Christ. And old things have passed away and all things have become new. And I would really challenge you to think and leave you as we, as we think about this idea of overabundance grace, whether it's the need for salvation and you need to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, or you're a believer and you say, you know what, I need to live more like Christ. I've met plenty of believers who aren't living like Christ. And if that's you this morning, 
Do you realize you can confess your sin according to 1 John 1? And, and he will cleanse you and forgive you from all this unrighteousness. And you don't have to live that way anymore. And you can get back on track. And you can get doing the things God wants you to do. And be back in the deployment and actively serving what God wants you to serve. And live for him for the rest of your life. It's your choice. Don't just live as some nominal Christian whose belief and in name only. Be a Christian who embraces and is thankful for the strength that was outside of you that changed you. Let it affect your life so that you live a holy life for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's for him. You're not doing me a favor, although I'm benefited from it. And we're benefited as a body when we live holy lives, but that's not why we do it, just to make, create a nice social environment where we're all doing good things. We do it because it proclaims the name and power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now lives in us and created us as a new person. And those old things are gone. Don't let those thoughts as a believer plague your mind. I know, but you don't know what I've done. He knows what you've done, and he still saved you. He knew what he was getting into when he saved a bunch of blasphemers, persecutors, and insolent people like us. And he saved us for his good purposes, for his glory, that it might be shown through him. And I would challenge you this morning as you think about your life, do the attitudes of your heart and the activities of your life reflect your past life or your new life in Christ? Which one, of it is, which one is more? Believers, let's live and honor him Let's stick close to the gospel and allow the gospel to permeate our lives so that the conduct of our lives, the attitudes of our heart, people can look, and most of all, the Father can look and say, well done. Well done, my child. He wants that for us. But we still have to make choices to live the way God wants us to live. Take, let's take seriously the call to not just push away false teaching but to embrace a life that is honoring and glorifying to him. Let's pray. Father, we were those people who were ignorant and unbelieving, who wouldn't know what truth was or had a version of truth that we believed, things that we perhaps even grew up with that were the right truths, but we weren't even ready to embrace them. Only you could divinely enable someone who was dead in their trespasses and sins, and that was us. Lord, but we need, your, we need to live in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we honor you for the rest of our days. Lord, help us do that. In your name we pray, amen.